And we're about halfway into our retreats. We're really in the heart of the retreat, aren't we? This is a good time to just um, reaffirm one's intention to stay with the process of the retreat, having put this much work in. It's hardly worth leaving if you've been thinking of it. You might as well now stay. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's hard work, eh? Just listening to people uh, in the groups and checking in um, and realizing there's one of my friends and teachers uh, used to say, it's a bit like uh, going on retreat, it's a bit like being eyeball to eyeball with one's karma. You know, wherever you move, there, there, there you are. <laughs> there your stuff is. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's challenging. It can be challenging. I'm really appreciating the quality of the group holding. It feels very, very good. Um, and sometimes we help to hold others, and sometimes others hold us. And I think that's a very nice flow and we don't quite have the effort and we can't quite contribute by our presence and we can allow the retreat to carry us and uh, vice versa in our presence and in our awareness we're helping hold those who are really struggling some very difficult things um, so this activity of compassion though it's not demonstrative it's very energetically um, felt uh, that um, we contribute to each other's welfare subtly uh, by just applying presence and being willing to be here with our, with the unfolding of our karmas. I'd like to um, remind us of a, to frame our work of a quote from the Pali Canon, which um, I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat: "Maga hatikile sewa patanu patitamatang." which uh, I find very helpful to reflect on. Which means the maga, the path, activity in and of itself, hatta breaks up that which is kilesa, uh, which is obstructive. Pata, nupati, tamatang. Pata is the fruit. Upati means to arise, tamatang, according to the Dharma. So sometimes when we can, when we hear these teachings, we can really feel, um, we can really activate our effort and our aspiration, which is very good, but it also can activate sometimes a really strong um, um, trying to get to an insight that maybe hasn't ripened yet. Uh, And so... Um, and so in, in that very trying, it almost obs- obscures or obstructs our ability to really just restfully and easefully be in relationship to the process of our own unfolding and the karma that we're working with. Um, and the sense of I doing something in, on, in and of itself is a subtle obstruction actually to the unfolding of the way. So that's the very thing that we investigate since the, 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 the eye that's trying to get there as we've been um, reflecting on and pointing out so this, this, you know, this encouragement is that actually what we, the work that we do do is apply moments of path activity 
That's the piece that we do. The ripening uh, of the Dharma is, is according to its own law. The ripening of the fruit, you know, the tasting of the insights, uh, ripens according to its own unfolding, its own lawfulness. It's a bit like a, if we've planted a garden and we've planted things and we go out and we try and pull up, <laughs> make them grow faster, then we'll destroy the plants. Um, and so really trusting that uh, this, this element of trust in the practice that we are with what perfectly what we need to be with whether it's something difficult whether it's something lucid and fluid whether it's a challenge and I've, over the years I've really gotten to trust I haven't liked it but I've gotten to trust that whatever is presented to me in whatever kind of shape or form or challenge that it's perfect for my own unfolding my own growth um, not what I would prefer. Of course, if I had a preference, I'd rather be able to dwell uh, in peaceful states, lucid states, be intuitively wise and compassionate and responsive at all times. And that's not how it is. You know, so, you know often I feel overwhelmed by confusion and uh, undermined by um, restlessness and driven by my ambitions. And, you know, there's all these other agendas that come on and influence the shaping of you know, what I have to work with or upset about what others are doing or um, frustrated by you know, how things aren't unfolding as I'd like them to unfold. Uh, so these are very human experiences. Um, and if I can just frame the practice, and I encourage you to frame the practice with actually, it's when you hear the profundity, you know, uh, last night Jatindriya so beautifully laid out uh, the core, the fruit, the essence of the most subtle realization. When you hear that um, profundity of, of, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really um, you know, something to aspire to. It's really lovely. It can really help frame our journey. But there's something about holding that also in relationship to being able to recognize that actually in each moment our, our work is just applying these moments of path activity, moments of uh, awareness, moments of presence, moments of inquiry, moments of insight. So the realization of Nibbana, as we've been talking to that, the stream entry, these are goals, if you like. But the goal is really never apart from the present moment. It's always this coming back into this present moment. Um, the source and the goal are the same place. So path activity, we've been looking at it from different points, haven't we? We've been looking at it of calming and stilling, and um, we've been looking at it generating wholesome states of mind, which we mentioned, the Brahma-Viharas, the compassion, the kindliness. We've been looking at it in terms of the inquiry, particularly the last few days, the vipassana, the reflecting on the nature of dhammas, the reflecting into the nature of things. How, how is our experience? What's happening here? Um, in particular, the, the, um, the framework of the Four Noble Truths, which was mentioned last night, which... Uh, is in a way the kernel of the, the whole of the teaching. And uh, there's one teaching that we reflect on and can really get a grasp of and really get an, a working knowledge of, then this would be the teaching I would actually, I think many teachers would recommend that we, can, we, we come to understand 
because it's uh, if we start from the premise of enlightenment, then often what happens is that um, you know, we just we just land up in a speculative relationship to that, a lot of confusion, a lot of speculation, or inflation, or dismissal, um, which was. Interestingly enough, the, the Buddha's very first teaching, usually the, the Four Noble Truths of Dhammachaka is known as the, his first teaching, but is actually a teaching before that arose when he was uh, after his awakening in Buddhgaya, and apparently he looked very radiant and peaceful and luminous, and he imagined someone after the struggles he'd been through, um, and someone came up to him and said, wow, you know, you look pretty amazing. What are you about? Who's your teacher? And the Buddha came out with this sort of lion's roar, this utterance, you know, that I, there is, I have no teacher. There's no one more realized than me. I am the awakened one. I'm fully liberated and so on and so forth. You know, it was a sort of a, a statement of truth. It's a statement of the truth of what all, we, all of our reality when we no longer obstructed. But the person couldn't really grasp it. They just said, well, you know, great for you, basically. That's nice. And, and moved on. You know, they couldn't, you know, they were left with, do you believe or do you disbelieve? Or what do you do with that? You know, you're already awakened. There's nothing to do. You know, that's it. Let's pack up and go home. <laughs> that's the truth, in a way. But, you know, what do we do with it? Uh, so, so by the time the Buddha had walked from... Um, Gaya to Saranath, which was quite a long walk, probably took a few weeks, he'd formulated another approach, which was this uh, formulation of the Four Noble Truths, um, which is a brilliant teaching, because he starts with the premise of there is this experience of dukkha. Uh, and, and dukkha, and each of the truths has a, has a practice with it or a remedy to it. Uh, it was sort of formulated on the, the Ayurvedic system, just designating the disease, the cause, the the, the um, remedy, and the and the, the cure and the remedy. It's a sort of very ancient paradigm that he used. And so this first articulation of this is something that we, you know, to say there is already enlightenment. You know, you're never apart from the awakened heart is a difficult premise to start from, but to start from the experience of there is this experience of dukkha is something we can all say, yeah, I mean, how many of us today have experienced the experience of dukkha? You know, of constriction, of struggle, pain. Or just, if it's not, doesn't have an emotional context, just another translation of dukkha is just the, the lack of dependability of 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 the of the flow of life, we can't really depend on something to stay stable because it's always shifting and changing, internally, externally. Um, or another translation, more subtle, do meaning apart from the kash or the akash, the, the the spacious or the perfect. This feeling very subtly of always being apart from the whole, being separate. This, our sense of separateness is a dukkha, yeah, a fundamental feeling of being separate, um, out of out of the flow of the whole. You know, the 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 sense of our individuality, a sense of ourself, and from that premise, there's there's the wanting and the desiring and the fear and the aversion and the whole dramas of life basically unfold from the feeling of 
our separation, being apart from. So at whatever level we experience it as, you know, whether it's just a block of suffering that we can't see any way around to this very, very subtle sense of dis-ease, uh, this is something we can actually acknowledge in any moment. The difficulty often with this experience is that we interpret it very personally. You know, I'm suffering, therefore I'm bad, or there's something wrong with me. Uh, but this, you know, if you, if the in the phrasing of, of this first noble truth is, it's just very dispassionately stated. There is, it's not I am or you are. There is this experience of dukkha. It's just inherent in compounded phenomena. This experience of it, you know, things because of the nature of the instability of compounded phenomena, there is that which is moving and quaking and shaving, shaking. So, uh, and this dukkha needs to be understood. So, on this retreat, we've been developing what do we bring, how do we understand or stand under or stand with. Uh, this capacity of mindfulness, of steadiness of heart, of steadiness of inquiry, of steadiness of, of attention, that very attention that we've been bringing to the samatha and samadhi practice, to breath, to sensation, to sound. We bring that in relationship to the experience of dukkha here and now and allow ourselves to actually feel it, to open to it. It's actually an encouragement not to defend, not to project it. Usually when there's that experience, we deny it, we distract, we repress it, we project it out. It's the world. We project it on, create a sense of self, project it inwardly, it's, an, it's a me. But it's just this turning to the con, this vipassana that we've been, this path activity of turning to, to contemplate for the sake of understanding, not intellectually writing a thesis about it, but actually knowing it, knowing. Uh, and then as we come into relationship, we can begin to know the, that which generates in any moment, what's generating the, the, the fundamental ignorance of the mind, the, uh, the lack of knowing, the opposite of what was being... Uh, talked about last night, the avijja, the, the not knowing the reality, not really knowing the true nature of things or making assumptions about the nature of things, making uh, false assumptions, basing, uh, not really investigating the, the inherent lack of solidity and the fluid nature uh, of the phenomenal world. And we make an assumption, this is mine. This is me. I own this. This belongs to me. And then when that shifts and changes, then we experience this disappointment. This death. We experience the feeling of death. And then we quickly can't tolerate that, so we need to be born again, find something else to shape ourselves around thought, a feeling, a perception, being born again into something that's moving and shifting, a sankharic form. Or just, you know, the generation, as Ajahn Chah, as we've been reflecting on in any moment, you know, the second noble truth, as we reflect in any moment on the the wanting and the not wanting of the mind, wanting something that's uh, not here, wanting a peaceful state, wanting 
what's here not to be here. I don't want this experience to be as it is. Um, I want something else. This constant, the relationship to the moment, this projection of the, the mind swayed under ignorance, of not accepting how it is, is constantly trying to shape a reality and generates the experience of struggle, the lack of ease. So we've been in the, in the inquiry, in the openness of reflecting, the reflective mind, the reflective capacity to know. We've been, you know, investigating and knowing, actually sometimes having moments of seeing that uh, wanting and not wanting and not having to become it, but seeing it arise and pass. And as we see some of those energies and movements pass, and we don't actually get shaped by them, we don't become a self, then we begin to notice what's underlying the entry into what's called the third noble truth through the process of of letting go. Just the letting go of the identification, the letting go of the, the mind not grasping around anything, not rejecting and pushing and resisting, not grasping. Very subtly, it's a very subtle inquiry really, the mind begins to realize, it it, it, it begins to inherently realize its own nature, that there's something, that there's a a quality, there's a knowingness or a, or a, or a, a suchness, a brightness, an awareness that's just present, that we miss because we're so busy Moving so busy, caught in this, in our perceptual frameworks, our thinking mind, our projections into the future, our struggle around the present moment. So that realization really emerges through this activity, or one of you know, can emerge in all sorts of ways, but through this, say, this inquiry of contemplating the, the four noble truths through the. Uh, the the the, uh, the the putting down or the non-grasping or the letting be. So ways that can help us explore uh, explore this in in a way this. Um, Vipassana is always looking, in some ways, bringing the attention to an object, the sense of the dukkha, the sense of phenomena, the khandhas, so Jitinya was laying out this morning, and it's the forms, the shapes, the, for, the uh, flow of life, the, the, the mental constructs, the emotional feeling tones, the, the stuff of it all. It's always sort of, in a way, pointing the attention to something as a, an object or to the breath in the calming meditations. In this, in this inquiry, in the third noble truth, that we begin, the mind begins to turn back into itself. It's almost like a turning back um, to contemplate the deathless, as was uh, been talked about last night, contemplate the signless, the suchness of the moment, the suchness of awareness the imminence of the knowingness. So there's, there's different 
ways it can help as methods to help uh, induct us into this realization of the of the third truth. And one of the um, favored ones in the say in the Chan meditation is an inquiry. It's called self-inquiry. Just turning the question, turning the mind back into this way, using this question, who? There's one way, who? Who's trying? When we're really trying to, you know, have a realization, we're really trying to get there, really, um, you know, worried or burdened, overwhelmed, just this gentle inquiry, well, who? Who's actually worried here? Who's trying to get there? Who's scared? Who's fearful? Yeah, what's, uh, yeah, as we as we uh, as we um, pose that question, you get different. Well, me, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is. I'm serious about this. You know, I'm. Yeah, I'm sort of signed up to this retreat, and I've got to work all out my problems by the end of it, and I've got to sort out my life, and I've got to fix my stuff, and get clear, and you know, get to this insight. It was. You know, it's really, really subtle. You know. Thing, uh, you know, and what's more, I've got all these other things I've got to do, and and it's you know it's just un- it's unquestioned, isn't it? It's unchallenged. We just assume that these are, you know, these are our, this is us. So this gentle, just well, who who's doing all of that, you know? And it just has a moment sometimes of just revealing this this structure. The structure of the self, doing the doingness of the you know the self structure, and we're not doing that to condemn, you know, the, the self. And you know, I actually feel quite sorry for the self sometimes. <laughs> and this gets quite hit upon in spiritual life. It's only trying to do its thing, you know. It's constantly sort of like, you know, it's empty, it's permanent. It's like, you know, it's like this poor little self going, oh, what about me? <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> so I think we have to treat it with a lot of respect. <laughs> but still, a moment. <laughs> so when we say who and it kind of opens, you know, hopefully we don't go, ha ha ha, got you. <laughs> Hit it on the head with our hammer, but it just, you know, has some compassion. But, but it does, it just reveals sometimes these moments of the, the assumption that it's not already here. It's not already, you know, there's something else to do, something else we have to get, something to worry about. So we might get, you know, a little bit of space around that, a little bit of like, oh, putting it down, putting the burden down. Or another one that, um, that I like to use is what remains. You know, what remains when, you know... It's this feeling of like, what if I don't think about this and I don't do this and who am I? You know, that can come up. There's a, there is a territory between the letting go, the second noble truth and the third noble truth, which is very, very, com- you know, I, it's a very delicate territory. It's, you know, what, what can emerge as we start to let go? All sorts of different states, feeling... Dis- dislocated, disorientated, scared, fearful, confused, con- really confused, different, you know, someone comes up and 
says, well, what's your name? So, well, I, I don't know, I haven't got a self. I'm, I'm the formless, timeless, ever-present one. And, you know, do I answer from that level? Or do I say, no, I'm Tanisra, but I'm not really. And that's only a convention. And who am I, for God's sake? And how am I going to do? And what am I going to do? And who, where, are you, blah. <laughs> you know, it can really just bring up so much. Uh, anatta, I don't exist, but I do. I am here. Am I here? Aren't I here? You know, just lots of different kinds of confusions or, or um, just um, the feeling of uh, we let go of how we've shaped ourselves. There can be a feeling of something dying away. Um, sometimes in spiritual language it's called the dark night of the soul. We don't know. We don't have the, our usual ways of um, reference points aren't the same. It's often very happens in a meditative journey, how we've referenced our lives, ourselves. You know, it gets, starts to sometimes get shaken up. And we can enter these really large territories of just not knowing. It's quite can be quite scary, quite fearful, quite anxious. The different structures will come up, or they'll be, you know, be threatened by that inquiry, self-structures. So we, you know, we need to approach that very gently, um, this is why it's the, the, the importance of uh, a steadiness of the mindfulness to know where to take refuge. So when I ask the question, what remains? When everything's wobbling all over the place. So what, what remains in any moment? It can actually help direct me back to the, this knowing. The knowing that uh, was mentioned last night, it's not a... Uh, you know, the, it's empty of self, it's not a... You know, it's just that which is present, that which is listening. Another way into that is um, through the listening. This is the meditation of Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva. You know, listening to the sounds, taking the sounds, the sounds of this world back into the one that's listening. You know, listening, so we listen, we listen to the sounds, the manifestation of the sounds, the form, sound is a form. It arises in this moment and it dissolves. Where, do, where does the sound dissolve back into? You know, it was there and then it's gone. The, uh, where, where does everything dissolve back into? Where does everything emerge from? And uh, you know, it's just reframing our, you know, usually you have this feeling of moving, you know, I'm moving through this thing called life, through this thing called the world, and, you know, reframing it that in every moment, this flow of life, this world is arising and passing within this one awareness, within this aware heart. So sound, listening to sound, in the meditation of Guan Yin, and the, it's mentioned in the Shurangama Sutra, there's a, the sutra takes place where uh, Anand, in the Siddham of Mahayana text, Ananda um, has gotten himself into trouble. Uh, he's, um, he's gone off on arms round and he's about to be seduced um, by someone that he's got a past life affinity with and he's taken bhikkhu vows, which so so there's a sort of a bit of an edginess about what's about to happen, and the Buddha with his psychic powers knows all of this, and 
and he he goes and gets Sariputra to sort of corral Ananda back, and then he then they have an assembly and they have a meeting and they decide to try and figure out what would be the best meditation for Ananda, and what's the best meditation for for awakening, and so all the bodhisattvas gather and they start to talk about the different meditations, contemplating the elements, contemplating four noble truths, contemplating space. Um, all their, their favoured meditations and uh, at one point they ask Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin what's your, what's, um, what's your favoured meditation and Kuan Yin re- responds the, it's called returning the organ of the hearing returning the, the sound back into the hearing nature listening into the self nature the contemplation of sound both external sound and then internal sound, subtle sound, returning the sound back into the, the one mind, or returning, this is the, the sutta, is in a way the, the ground for the emergence of the Chan and the Zen schools, turning the mind back into itself, you know, using, using unanswerable questions, or using the sense doors to particularly sound, who is the one listening? And so the comment from the, the Buddha uh, was that this, you know, was uh, one of the superior methods and would be a very efficacious method for the age we're in. This method of, of returning the hearing. So as we, you know, listen, we can we can say so listening to this dhamma talk. We can hear sounds, and we have the idea there's a dhamma talk some hopefully coherence <laughs> going through it. But in reality, as we listen, we notice there's lots of gaps in it, lots of spaces, lots of holes. So can we listen into those gaps, into those silences? And, uh, and as we get... Or another way that uh, Ajahn Sumedho used to talk about is noticing space. You know, we come into a room and we see lots of individuals here and we have, you know, all sorts of comments about everyone and what's happening. And we don't really notice the space it's all happening in. You know, it's all happening in the space. We think of Gaia House, but we don't notice the space. We think of the planet, we don't notice the space. We think of the stuff of our mind, but we don't notice the space. And this is an analogy again for awareness the space within which it's all arising and passing. We notice the stuff, but do we notice the, uh, the context, the space, the awareness? The suchness. It's not that there, you know, sometimes when we is the talking of the, the, the phenomenal world and the, uh, and the awareness. It sounds like they're, they're two distinct things, but ultimately it's not that they're really two things. They're one, one mind, one mind. And so one, another analogy, these are just different ways of talking to, to open into this uh, contemplation that... Um, my partner Kitty Sara likes to use very much, which I, I like very much too, is, is an analogy with the, with the ocean. You know, when we, we see the waves on top of the ocean, 
and we can look at the waves and think, oh, that's a really lovely wave, and that's a, you know, that's a big, powerful wave, and that's a really tiddly, silly wave, and and then the wave comes and it, it emerges from the ocean, from the body of water, and it, you know, it's a great wave for surfing, and then it crashes on the beach. You know, and then we think, oh, look what happened to that wave, that poor wave. You know, it came and it crashed and it's died and oh, it's a tragedy. You know, but where does that wave get pulled back into? Where does it emerge back into? In, in many ways, the, the whole um, phenomenal world that we experience of sight, sound, the, the khandas that were mentioned today, this, the... Um, forms and the, the feelings and the, the thoughts and the patterns, the shaping, the sankara, karma formations, they're a bit like those waves and we, we interpret them really as me and my individually, don't we? And then when it, when it shifts and changes, we can feel devastated. Where did that wave go? And we can just notice when it all, it's all water. Just went back into its own nature, into the into you know. The, so all of the, that which arises, you know, which we we sort of cut up into a little piece. My thoughts, my feelings, my this. Actually, it's all emerging and dissolving back into this one awareness. It's one suchness, this unmoving suchness, as it's sometimes called in the Chinese school, Chinese Chan school the unmoving suchness of the mind, of the heart. As, as we begin to um, recognize uh, the non-dual nature of this, then the other side of the, the emptiness of phenomena, the emptiness of self, is actually the inter- interconnectedness of all things. You know, that we, we feel ourselves to be separate. It's thought that designates the sense of separation. But as we move more into, you know, when we're in dualistic consciousness, thinking about things, um, looking out and seeing there's, a, there's someone out here and there's me in there, sort of the sense of me and you arising together. As I experience the sense of you in consciousness, there's a, there's a sense of me <laughs> co-arising and there's some, something happening. <laughs> uh, you know, you're thinking about me, I'm sort of aware of you. You know, I'm thinking, if I'm thinking about you, immediately as I start thinking, um, then there's a sense of someone that's thinking about someone else or something else. But as we start to, to shift and dro- let go, you know, let go of those structures and arrive and trust, it's really trusting that we're letting go, we let go into this, uh, this uh, Awareness, then the awareness itself is more non-dual. It's a non-dual situation. So interconnect. We feel the interconnectedness of everything, the non-separateness of it. Ultimately, the non-separateness of, of all, of all phenomena, of all beings. And this, it's this realization that, from that realization, that emerges uh, this idea of the uh, the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva heart. That heart that's 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 knows its own emptiness, but also knows its interconnectedness with all, with all beings, with all phenomena. 
another another way of putting this, which is um, I, I quite like, is from the um, the teaching of Sagadatta, uh, where he talks. Uh, one of the phrases that he uh, he uses is that uh, in, in wisdom, in insight. <laughs> Wisdom sees that I am nothing. There's no way that ultimately we can designate an ultimate designation about ourselves. We can't ultimately say I'm this or I'm that or I'm this way or that way because it's changing all the time, isn't it? This sense of ourself is it's more like a process than a thing, really. It's an interdependent, arising, dynamic process dependent on so many causes. It's emerging in each moment rising and dissolving so when we see that from the eye of wisdom then we can see that there's there's no one thing there isn't a thing there's a, a, an interdependent process we can't cut a thing out and say this is a thing that's not dependent on something else yeah, we can't look at this body and say it's not dependent on the water on the food on people cooking on the the earth on the even the thoughts I'm sharing tonight they're not my thoughts really they you know they're all <laughs> they're not mine <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take responsibility for them but they're not really mine you know it's, it's risen out of so many different conditions listening to you today and talking to Jatinya and what I've heard and what I've contemplated you know so it's, it's, there's no one thing you know there's no one ownership actually and so the wisdom the inquiry just really empties that all out empties the ownership and reveals the reverse side that where compassion knows that I am everything. You know that that, that actually when there is the the the, uh, the opening into this interdependent flow, it's a stunning realization that ultimately we're not separate from anything. You know, if we if we move to one side or the other, then we get caught. You know. So this. Is being able to balance between, and then the third part of the statement is between these two banks, the life of a practitioner flows. So we don't get stuck on either bank, but there's this kind of dynamic of flowing between the response in life, the compassion understands its interconnectedness, and the, the, the profound peace of the emptying of the letting go, just resting where it's all perfect. So in, in the Bodhisattva, people have asked about the archetype of the Bodhisattva of Guan Yin. Then uh, uh, these two these two um, realizations are uh, embodied: perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. <coughs> In, uh, and, and in the in the um, Chinese school, the turning of the four the four noble truths, the contemplation of the four noble truths from that realization emerges into the four what's called the four bodhisattva vows, the the the, the initial recognition of there is suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, which at first we start off with the premise of the experience of I'm I'm really suffering, it's really hurting, and I need to somehow free myself, and that's an impetus often for our practice. It's a very good one. But as we start to deepen and realize its whole premise we've operated on, that the eye that needs to be freed is a bit sort of questionable, 
when we empty that out a bit more and we realize that well there, there is just suffering everywhere we look you know we, can, we don't have to look very far there's just you know, oodles of it uh, and so the impetus then starts to emerge that there is suffering and uh, uh, the, the first of the bodhisattva vows is I vow I intend to respond to alleviate it where I can I will uh, and it's not coming so much from the self but just the, the perfect response that emerges from emptiness is to alleviate suffering and then the, the second noble truth is that um, is, is the the causes of suffering, which which transmutes itself, transforms itself into the second great bodhisattva vow, which is that afflictions are endless. I, I vow to cut through them all, or I vow to transform them all. You know, every day we meet an affliction, an obstruction, be it restlessness, be it confusion, be it some form or other of greed, hatred, or delusion. And rather than just being cowed by that, or rather being reactive, this this heart that raises up to meet it, the bodhisattva heart is considered to be a, uh, the activity of fearlessness. It's a heroic. It's the sense of the 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 heroic archetype in practice. I I vow or I intend to transform all inflictions. And then the, the third noble truth, which is the uh, uh, the the, um, the realization of nibbana, there is the ending of suffering. It needs to be realized. There is that which is already peaceful, it needs to be open to. Uh, gets translated into the Buddha's path is unsurpassed. I vow to realize it. And what this means is that. There's not only the the realization for ourselves of the unshakable heart, but also the the Buddha was known. There are many beings that have that realization, but they don't necessarily respond. They don't necessarily teach. They don't necessarily manifest to affect other beings. Um, and just. You know, so this particular vow is the acknowledgement that yes, there is that realization, but it's not necessarily the end of the journey. And when the when the Buddha, after his enlightenment, uh, when um, he was very reluctant to teach, you know, there's, there's no doubt that that it's a very difficult thing to do to try and communicate this uh, his his understanding. And it's said that you know. There was this great reluctance. He spent six weeks in bliss, of the liberation. And with the doubt, you know, who can understand? Who can understand this? You know, who can really, uh, no one's going to get, get this. And so there was nearly the moment when he just withdrew and apparently the whole heavenly realm went crazy and said, we can't let this happen. And they sent down the Brahma Sahampati, one of their gods, to come before the Buddha one of their great radiant angelic beings and ask out of compassion I mean you can see that metaphorically as, a, as the movement of compassion it's compassion that allows the teachings to, that allows you know, it was nothing else really than the movement of compassion for the suffering of those um, and for, the, for those that have a little dust in their eye please turn the wheel of the Dhamma this is the request of the Buddhas 
to stay in the world and turn the wheel of the Dhamma. So this third great vow is both to try and support that, turning the wheel of the Dhamma, and to turn it oneself. You know, and to realize, to realize that. Uh, so to realize the, 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 the Buddha way, and then the, and then the uh, last fourth noble truth of the path, path activity, gets transformed into the fourth great Bodhisattva vow, which is that there are many Dharma doors. Um, and I vow, this is a Chinese system, I think each system has some phrased a little bit differently, but I vow to cultivate them all, which, which I, I really like because there's this sense of, you know, there's many different doorways into the Dharma. It's not just one. And to be open, to, to be fluid... Uh, to have some flexibility, some working knowledge, uh, the different Dharma teachings. So it's, this is um, you know, these these two wings really of the of the practice that the wing of wisdom and insight and the balancing wing of compassion, compassionate response. And you know, in, in terms of this practice we're doing here, um, we're actually liberating the beings of our own heart you know, before going out and doing things, our activities in the world, this inner you know, learning to, as I, 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 I remember when I um, first came across the Bodhisattva vows, they felt so overwhelming. I thought, good grief, you know, I can hardly be here for another ten minutes, never mind vowing to save all living beings to the last blade of grass. I mean, it's just completely, <laughs> completely overwhelming. I was like, um, and I actually I, I went to some of his holiness's teaching, Dalai Lama, and they always give the Bodhisattva vows, and I sort of took these vows, and I went into a complete sweat about it, being a Theravadan nun, and thought, what? the hell have I just done? I've just committed myself to endless things. I mean, it was all coming from this sense of self, you know, me heroically sort of wading through endless eons, saving all living beings. I mean, it was just enough to give me a migraine. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not really, it's not coming out of a sense of self, but that's how I interpreted it. And I went to see um, Ajahn Sumedha, and I said, God, this thing's just happened. I don't know what to do about it, you know. It's the only way of absolving it, you know, from a Theravada point of view. So, never mind, dear, you can get off the wheel, it will be over soon. You know, was it seven more lifetimes? <laughs> I could just maybe manage that. But what he said was actually a very lovely response. He just said, well, look, you know, the, the way that you look at this is just the encouragement to, can you be with this moment? Can you patiently be with how it is here and now? That's the Bodhisattva heart. You know, when we start to get inflated and, oh, me, I, I'm the heroic one, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, bound, we're bound to um, either burn out or fail, really. But the sense of, can I return it back into this, the emptying, you know, the emptying of the, of the sense of self, you know, the, the appropriate response coming out of emptiness isn't a self-response, it's just the response that needs to happen, the intuitive response to the moment that can emerge. It's not that the letting go of a self, we're letting go into a nihilistic or a 
dead place or an unresponsive place or it's like a sort of spiritual suicide. It's actually we're letting go into the, the very heart of the flow of life, actually. That which is vibrant and dynamic <clears throat> into the stillness, but also really recognizing that it's... it's uh, You know, the Dhamma is always, always able to flow, flow through us. And so we will we, we be in tune, the right response. So I found this encouragement of uh, Ajahn Sumedha very helpful just to, can we in this moment be with the beings, cross the beings over of our own mind, the beings of worry, the beings of fear, the beings of feeling stuck, you know, can we actually come into relationship with those, with our steadiness, with our compassion, and release those beings of the heart? Bring them, allow them to uh, be released. So as we, we do, do this, listening to the sounds of the world, listening to our own self-nature, we, we become really the um, activity of Kuan Yin, both in returning everything back into the emptiness and emerging into the uh, appropriate response, whatever that might be, response from wisdom, response from compassion. So I'd like to um, finish tonight with a prayer. This is called Kuan Yin's Prayer for those that abuse. So Kuan Yin appears also as a, you know, one of the other manifestations in the um, Lotus Sutra, the Universal Door chapter of the Lotus Sutra is the compassionate response to what's called the transformation bodies of Kuan Yin. And uh, this is really the, the um, idea that the Bodhisattva appears in whatever form is needed to alleviate suffering, whatever merciful form is needed. And so there's these quite archetypal ways that, that Kuan Yin appears in different situations. And I like to see it that, um, that actually what it means is that compassion comes to us in many, many different ways, be it through a child or through an animal or through a, a piece of suffering that we have to work through. That these are all sort of manifestations of, of the compassion, the deeper compassion of that which is awakening us. Mm. And so you know, one of the practices that's, that's done uh, around the whole Bodhisattva of Kuan Yin is, is not only the really subtle practice of the listening into the self-nature, but also the invoking the invoking of this archetype, the invoking of compassion. Um, and yeah, we might feel that that's, um, from our Western rational mind, that that's, that's uh, you know, ineffective, but I find it's been very mysterious working with that Dhamma door of just holding the name Kuan Yin when there's suffering, when there's danger, when there's fear, um, when the mind has lost its balance and its refuge, just coming back, it reminds to trust. It reminds to trust that underneath it's a mysterious universe, a benevolent universe. I, I um, just tell you, actually, I was going to read this poem and I'll try and get there, but I'll tell you a story because around this 
compassionate response of Kuan Yin, uh, because uh, it's, um, it's a true story, because I was there, <laughs> which happened um, when we were in South Africa. In fact, there are many, many stories in South Africa, because we, we do the um, practices around Kuan Yin a lot there. It's quite a difficult place. There's a lot of violence, a lot of challenges. Uh, it's quite difficult to maintain an internal sense of well-being and, and steadiness. And um, one of the, I mean, it's different, we're involved in different things there, but one of the things that um, we've been involved in has been uh, building a hermitage. We have a hermitage there and run long retreats, and we opened it with a, with a three-month retreat in the year 2000. And there were five of us doing this retreat for three months. And um, about two and a half months into the retreat, it's the winter. It's the winter period on the in the mountains, in the edge of Lesotho, and at that time, the land gets very, very dry. It's a, it's a very high risk for fires because the land is like a tinder. You know, just one spark and it just goes up. So um, during that retreat, we had um, we did a Chan retreat, we did a Kuan Yin retreat, and my partner was living in a in a hut, we'd sort of had our own dwellings and we'd had um, this um, shed that we'd gotten and put on the land, so weighed about a ton. And during that night, before we were just finishing the charm retreat, during that night these winds came and they were very, very, very powerful winds, they were about 120 miles an hour. And we, when we came out of the morning session, it was about four in the morning, we were get, went to the kitchen, because it was all huts, it was very basic. We sort of just head down and we, we ran to the kitchen to get our porridge. And then one of the retreatants came in and said, Kitty, sorry, your hut's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, you know, where is it? And we sort of looked out and it had <laughs> been, been picked up by the wind like a matchbox and smashed into about a thousand pieces. And in, in Kilisara's hut there was a, a statue, a little very delicate statue, ivory statue that one of his, when he'd been a monk at the Devonvahara, one of his supporters had given him, which, is, um, which had been thrown and the, a table had nearly smashed it but had just gone down on the side of it and it was just completely in one piece. So we went and picked up the stuff, including this very delicate Kuan Yin, thought, well, that's great, you know, Kuan Yin's okay, that's okay, should be okay. Um, and then he had on the wall of the hut two pictures, one of Kuan Yin, a little plastic picture, um, and one of uh, Mother Mary, which he liked very much. And um, I said, look, I'll take those pictures in this, in this wind and I'll put them in our drawer, um, you know, so that, that at least they'll be safe while we clear up this mess. By the afternoon, a fire had got caught on this wind, come down from Lesotho, was a runaway fire. And um, we had about, literally about 15 minutes to get out. You know, the fire just was, was incredible. It was just racing towards us. And at one point, the three blokes on the retreat thought, well, maybe they should, this is the time to really try these mantras to see if they work. <laughs> so they got out there and faced this fire, and they were doing something called the Shrangara Mantra, and they started doing this. And, and actually, for a moment, the wind stopped, and the fire, it just stopped. And they looked at each other and went, pretty good. And as soon as they thought that, poof, yeah, up it came again. So that didn't work. So anyway, we, we basically had to just grab a few, few things and run for it and dr- drive away. 
and the fire just raged on through. It was chaos. I mean, it was just madness. People were trying to put it out, trying to get horses, because there's a lot of horses in the area and cattle. And so about 20 square miles were burnt, and we were sort of down the road, sort of figuring out what was going to happen. And I just sat there and thought, well, that's it. That's the end of the hermitage in the South Africa story. <laughs> it's finished. It's burnt. There's no way that anything's going to survive this fire. So eventually we came back, and... Um, the hermitage was intact and one of the the amazing thing was that we had uh, the um, small huts that we were practicing was a thatch the shrine area was it was thatch and the thatch came right down to about uh, just a meter off the ground and the heat of the fire was so hot it was just spontaneously igniting um, logs and things and one you know, logs were burning just right next to this thatch and and the thatch hadn't caught um, and one of the huts, which was just about to ignite, one of the local Zulu lads, for some bizarre reason, just came came up the road and put out this fire. And in fact, you know, everything except for the hut, because okay, so I was had had gotten saved. And um, we had then had a freeze, and the whole land was black and frozen. And okay, so I said, "Where's that?" You know, when we start clearing up, I said, where did you put the picture of Kuan Yin? And I said, no, it's in that drawer. And we opened the drawer and it disappeared. It had gone. And, you know, after, after two days of clearing up, us, just towards the end, that picture reappeared at a place where it had re- the fire had been at most, most hot, this little plastic picture just appeared. Mm-hmm. It's like she sort of just floated back down again and arrived on this... And it just—it was—it was just amazing because you know, was no because we had walked over that piece of land a lot, cleaning up, and it wasn't there, and just suddenly it was there. Um, and then when the fire officer came. He just said he just looked at all of this this situation. He said, I, "He said I can't understand it." He said, "You've had a miracle here." He said, "I don't know what's happened, but all I can say is you've had a miracle. This, all this whole place should have gone." Um, and, and one of the one of the retreatants said, in 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 the hut we had we have this very large carved wooden guan yin. And he said, oh, he said he knows what happened. He said that moment when the fire stopped when we were doing the mantras, guan yin sent down the fire brigade <laughs> and protected. <laughs> Your mind can get very strange on three months retreats. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> it happened. So, um, yeah, so, so this is, I mean, this is, wouldn't be too surprising for a Guanyin practitioner because there are many, many stories of these sort of miraculous responses from, from invoking the, the merciful response of this mysterious aspect of the universe, that which is compassionate, that which can hold the heart. So, you know, so this, for me, this, this isn't a contradiction with the inquiries when, when sometimes we are facing something that's really difficult to face or be with, and we haven't got the strength ourselves to hold the intent, the attention, we haven't got the inquiry power, we can't, you know, dissolve it, like that salt crystal that Jatinya was talking the other night, it's too bitter, the whole of our being's flooded with the bitterness, and then holding gently uh, the name of Kuan Yin or the Buddha, or something that inspires us, or a word that inspires us, and just mixing the breath with that really can help just steady, steady the heart in the face of that, which is, can sometimes feel quite unbearable. You know, just to compassionately call on that which helps. And it's not, it's always the master, well, the Chinese master, that some 
influence in, in these teachings on, on me. So actually, it's all within the one mind. It's not, Guan Yin isn't different from the, the suchness of, our, of your own heart. You're calling into your deepest nature. So the Kuan Yin's prayer. To those who withhold refuge, I cradle you in safety at the core of my being. To those who cause a child to cry out, I grant you the freedom to express your own choked agony. To those who inflict terror, I remind you that you shine with the purity of a thousand suns. To those who would confine, suppress, or deny, I offer the limitless expanse of the sky. To those who need to cut, slash, or burn, I remind you of the invincibility of spring. To those who cling and grasp, I promise more abundance than you could ever hold on to. To those who vent their rage on small children, I return you to your deepest innocence. To those who must frighten into submission, I hold you in the bosom of your original mother. To those who cause agony to others, I give the gift of free flowing tears. To those that deny another's right to be, I remind you that the angels sang in celebration of you on the day of your birth. To those who see any division and separateness, I remind you that a part is born only by bisecting a whole. For those who have forgotten the tender mercy of a mother's embrace, I send a gentle breeze to caress your brow. And to those who still feel somehow incomplete, I offer the perfect sanctity of this very moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.